generate is supporting my vision to improve the financial literacy of 100,000 Kiwis by sponsoring Keep the Change. Cheers, Generate. Head to generatekiwisaver.co.nz forward slash change to find out more. Getting in the KiwiSaver fund that suits you and your situation is key to making sure you're maximising your investment. Generate are an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of long-term performance and they can help you do exactly this. Their advisors can meet with you to talk about all your options when it comes to KiwiSaver to help you decide what's best for you. Too many people never get KiwiSaver advice, but not you. Go to generatekiwisaver.co.nz forward slash change to book a no-obligation chat with a Generate advisor. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited. And of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Welcome back. You are listening to another episode of the Keep the Change podcast. It's been a while, but we've got the talented and smart Rupert Carline from Calder Kiwi Saver and Calder Wealth on the hot seat again. Good to see you as always, mate. Hey, Luke. Great to be back. Do you want to just quickly tell people where you guys sit in the market uh, and some of the cool stuff you do? Rupert Carline, Calder Wealth. We are a Kiwi Saver provider. Pure and simple. We specialize in nothing but Kiwi Saver. Because we think KiwiSaver is one of the most important savings mechanics people are going to have. And you've got a very simple process on the website where people can basically go through and effectively sort of put in what they might like to be invested in and you provide a recommendation? Yeah, so we're the only ones in the market with a digital advice tool. So you tell us a little bit about you, you tell us some of the areas that you want to invest in and we'll build you a bespoke KiwiSaver portfolio for you. Um, and so putting that in practice, if you are a 45-year-old saving for your retirement or a 25-year-old saving for your retirement, uh, we're going to give you a portfolio with heaps of equities in it. You tell us, oh, by the way, I, I like to think about clean energy. I like to think about property. I like to think about crypto. We'll put in some bespoke funds that will give you those little exposures as well. All done with a massive amount of portfolio theory that sits in behind. Um, but again, allowing you to kind of make some quite cool choices and, and invest where you want to. Portfolio theory, portfolio theory, geez, might have to ask what. Oh, we'll come back to that one later, but that's, um, I mean, yeah. It's, we can come back to that. Um, I'm a technical finance prophet, yeah, yeah. and so this is the stuff I love. Yeah, that's, what I, that's what I read, spend my nights reading about, but that's what this is all about, right? It's about how do you put different assets together uh, to create great returns without taking too much risk. Well, I have an exceptional story for you, mate, from today that I think you're going to love. Now, I had a message from a Keep the Change listener, and they said that they've been listening for over 12 months now and implementing different things, and it's made a big difference in their finances. They also said that themselves and somebody else in the organization that they work for have been lobbying off the back of understanding some more information about retirement for their employer to think about contributing more than just 3%, which is the obligation. And today they were able to send out a organization-wide email to say that the company is now going to kick in up to a maximum of 8% for their staff. Wow. Yeah. That is amazing. Pretty cool, eh? That almost like, that could be an Australian company. Yeah. I mean, that's awesome. So I said to them, wow, that's pretty life-changing for you know, for those people who may up their contribution, it's going to be matched 100%, pretty hard to get a return like that, up to 8%. And that's the kind of cool stuff that I can now start seeing coming through from the people within Keep the Change. It's not just about me, it's not about you, it's not about the guests, it's about the people that are listening and going, huh, now that finally makes a bit of sense. What can I do to then take this a bit further? And yeah, I thought you might like that oh, No, I love that story. And do you, do you know the best part about it? Is that employer, it's going to potentially cost them a little bit of cash in the short term, but I guarantee that employer will have the most loyal staff around and they're going to go and talk to all of their mates about their employer that's done all this for them. Mm. And so recruiting the next role is going to be really easy. Um, it's going to be the cheapest thing they've ever done in the medium term. And when they start to see those employees, their average KiwiSaver, well, their KiwiSaver balance probably end up being a lot higher than the average KiwiSaver balance is going to probably make a lot of sense as well. Oh, massive. Yeah. That's awesome. Cool. So today, mate, productivity, to start with, I guess, like, what is productivity and why is it so important? So productivity at its simplest form is 
how do we use all of our resources, the assets, everything that we do, we put in a little pot, outputs some outputs. Um, the more productive we are means the more outputs come out of it and kind of comes back to really three things, right? If we're highly productive, that's going to mean more money. Um, so as a country, it means more money for taxes, more money to support all the programs that we want to do. Um, at an individual level, it, it makes us richer. Um, so productivity is, is all about how do we maximize our outputs. From an economic perspective, technically, what we, we talk about is, product, is GDP per capita is really one of the best ways to measure productivity. So GDP, gross domestic product, that really measures the output of an economy. In New Zealand, we've become, we love talking about GDP growth, but we forget about the fact that over the last 10, 15 years, we've also been through an immigration boom and had some of the highest immigrations we have ever had in New Zealand history, even going back to the 1850s. Um, so realistically, we need to be looking at it in GDP growth term, GDP per capita terms, rather than GDP, because actually you're always going to grow if you just throw more people at the problem, right? So is that our GDP is growing by adding in more people because we've just got more economic activity through them doing more, transacting more, producing more. So it's effectively a little bit artificial. Yes. In some ways. So that's not, not in some ways, it is. It is okay. Yeah. <laughs> so um, if we keep bringing people in, then we should see growth in GDP. And that's why I think recently we saw growth in GDP took us out of a recession. But some economists were saying, well, if you bring that back to a per capita measure. Well, like minus three or four. Shit. Yeah. So if you didn't bring those people in, we wouldn't have been growing as an economy. Slightly controversial comment, but it probably took the Labour government five years to realise the easiest way to grow an economy is just bringing people. Wow. John Key got it on day one. Yeah. That's why he built out the international student sector because that was just a that was basically just a paid way to do immigration. Um, that's why he kind of drove the immigration boom because it is by far and away the quickest way to drive growth in an economy. Yeah. Okay, tangent maybe, but is is this related? So I was at a conference and construction industry, right? And basically what they were saying is that because the workers are worked so hard, there's so much work to be done, they make mistakes, then they have to go back. Then the business loses money because it's rework, it's inefficient, it cuts into their margin. And the person was basically saying the consumer ends up paying because... And the businesses were like, no, no, we pay because it costs us profit. And they said, yeah, but basically you then end up charging the end consumer more because you know that your team are going to make mistakes. So then you factor that in across all of your jobs and eventually the consumer pays and that increases the costs of those things. And the amount of construction stories I've heard where there are those issues, you think, oh, that really makes a lot of sense. But that, is that a form of unproductiveness because people are then having to go back and do it right the second time, it is. It's a, it's a mess. It's a, it is a form of unproduct of lack of productivity, and but I'd say that this and this is where the balancing act is. And I, I don't have the answer here, and I don't know um, where historically or not historically over the last probably particularly in the last 15, 20 years. And actually, no, it's historically all the way back through to the sixties. What we have continued to do is bring in immigration to fuel kind of um, those lower end jobs. And what that's meant is that we have, because there's a kind of almost been a perpetual supply of lower end people willing and wanting to come to New Zealand to live and work here, it's meant that we haven't needed to automate. So we'll come back to your construction activity, right? And go, oh, sorry, your construction um, example. And I don't know whether this is doable or not doable, but actually, if there were less people and you kind of knew that you were going to struggle to get people, is there an opportunity to automate some of those processes? Is there an opportunity to invest more in machinery or other things that are actually going to mean that rather than needing three things, three people to do a job, you can turn that into a single person? The, the balance is that that's not a decision you can make overnight. Mm. Um, it's a three, four, five, ten-year transition, and it's kind of you. It's really, really hard because you've got to be very brave and thinking like that. Some examples that you look at in the agricultural sector here in New Zealand are, are really good ones, right? Where you go um, viticulture, where there are opportunities there where you can actually automate a lot of the work that happens in a vineyard. Um, instead, what we do is we bring in people to do a lot of those jobs. 
And actually, this is an, an interesting sector where the cost of pruning on a per vine basis um, and what goes to the person doing the pruning is significantly lower than where it was 15, 20 years ago. Wow. Because they've changed the mix of people. I actually saw recently on Country Calendar a tractor that drives itself. And you I can saw control. That, that yeah. was awesome. But, you, but that's a really good example of mm. kind of actually going, and that example there where they said, if we can get the tractor mowing the lawns and doing it all by itself, that's a one to two FTE that we don't need anymore. We reckon by the time it saves us on the ultra, on the diesel cost, on the person that's sitting on it, all of a sudden we've kind of got way more output for the same level of input. It's such a nuanced topic because I don't even know why I say that, but I heard someone say that. I don't even. I'm going to stop saying this is a nuanced topic, but um, I think I'll, there'll be people listening going, "Yeah, but people are going to lose their jobs." It seems to be like people always worry about losing their jobs. I don't know where we get conditioned to think like that, but. No one has sympathy for the person who used to stand there before the traffic light or to lift the arm to get you in and out of the car park or take your payment, you know. And I think people evolve into different areas or we end up doing higher value tasks. The, the one I always, the example I always give is Excel and accountants, right? Mm, um, great example. Where, no, but back in, if you'd thought, someone had said to an accountant 30 years ago, Excel and zero is going to mean that data entry is gone. Um, simple exercises that used to take two days can now be done in 30 seconds. Um, but there are still more accountants than there ever were. The difference is an accountant now adds value and does really great things for the business they work for rather than focusing on balancing books. Well, that's what they're supposed to be doing, but most aren't. But if you want to get in touch with a really good one, <laughs> look at Next Advisory and we'll uh, talk to you exactly what Rupert's uh, taking oh, you through there. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I know exactly what you mean. And I used to enter in line by line bank account transactions into an accounting software. That was my job. Yeah. Like anyone could do that, but I had done years of study to do that and was getting paid pretty well to line by line take a ruler down and go, okay, and then I get the balance wrong, have to do another hour trying to figure out which one did I type in wrong. Now import it, bang, done, or it's automatic. Exactly. I mean, yeah. I, yeah. Data rooms, right? I've spent a lot of time in data rooms in my time. I remember yeah. at the start, we went in and we got locked in a room for four days and putting stuff. Like, yeah. It's just insane when you think about it now. Yeah. It's so New Zealand, what's happened for us? Because you've got some data on New yeah. Zealand sort of going backwards in this space, right? So how's that happening? So it's kind of pretty sad. Back in the 1960s, um, according to some of the IMF data that we've seen, we're the second highest GDP per capita in the world behind the US. Um, we were a rich country. It was awesome. Um, and unfortunately, we've fallen back to kind of, I think we're bound down to about 36th in the world at the moment. Um, our GDP per capita is just falling big time. A lot of that happened during the 1980s and 1990s, uh, where we went through the structural reform and the structural change um, of our, um, sorry, a lot of those structural reforms of the economy, where it just kind of stopped growth. Kind of, we, we spent a long time getting our books back in order. We probably, I would argue, went way too far in the austerity uh, measures and the austerity things. Um, and that just kind of put us on a, on a massive kind of stop. What it didn't do is then allow us to accelerate back out the other side. So if you think about, put it back into my corporate language, what happens in a corporate kind of with CEOs in a company, right? You have the growth CEO that goes out, buys everything, spends heaps of money, does an awesome job um, at growing the top line but then goes bust because he spent all his money and then you end up the next CEO is the one that comes in cuts all the costs takes it back to bare bones and nothing really happens um, you kind of get the balance sheet sorted you get all that stuff happening but then the board finally gets sick of the fact that there's no revenue growth so then they fire that person to bring back the previous person unfortunately in cycles that's what we want from a country and from a New Zealand perspective but where we're kind of going is we just float around the middle. We don't have anyone that's brave enough to make the big investment decisions. And we, I don't think we've had anyone make a brave new, decision in New Zealand politics probably since Ruth Richardson in the early 1990s. Um, so we don't have anyone brave enough to truly transform our balance sheet and our cost structure. And at the same time, we haven't had anyone like Muldoon, love him or hate him, but we should all be thankful that he existed because every single piece of infrastructure that we have right now exists because of him. You think all of our power companies, all of our power assets, our railroads, um, so much is because of what he built in the 1970s. And we've just missed that kind of bravery from a political piece. 
And the issue that this means in New Zealand and for New Zealand, if we don't have the productivity and we're kind of, as we get poorer as a country, we can't afford to deliver the services that we want to. So we're spending more as a percentage of GDP than we've ever spent on healthcare and education. Good examples, right? Where you go, um, but let's be honest, we are not delivering anywhere near the outcomes that we expect to and that we want to deliver. Part of that's because can we afford to, there's two questions, right? Can we make those services more efficient? The answer has to be yes. But actually, I think we're almost getting to a level of going, you know what? can we still afford to deliver the level of services that a rich country expects to deliver? Um, and I think that's going to make some really interesting questions. The other thing that I kind of think about a lot is the, the wage differential, particularly between here and Australia. It doesn't help that over the last kind of 60 years, Australia's had a 6% per capita GDP growth. New Zealand's had 5% per capita GDP growth. And so that's now why you go to Australia, you get paid a hell of a lot more, um, it's an easier living. There's a whole lot of reasons. And what that means is until we can sort out our own issues and start figuring out how we can pay New Zealanders more, again, no different to a company, we're going to still get our top talents going to keep on leaving um, because they're going to be better off elsewhere. Yeah, I think we're seeing a lot of that at the moment, right? And I've literally just come from a meeting with a client who is moving in a month's time. And yeah, they're off. They've been for a taste of it. They like it. They're going to go have a crack. Some of it's wage, some of it's lifestyle, um, but also mates that have that have gone and moved over there and I think the data backs it up too. It's pretty... We're effectively competing with other countries, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. Mm. And this is why for the economic... Well, actually, no, I'd argue the whole side, right? But this is why I think governments and countries need to kind of think about like a company. So I run Cotter Wealth. I know I have to pay my people properly because, and I know I have to do, um, I have to figure out a way that my business works well enough that I can pay a fair wage because otherwise they're just going to leave me and go work at Fisher Funds next door. Yeah. And it's no different from a country, right? Mm. Um, it's, they can move from Australia to New Zealand really, really easily. Um, and the wider these gaps become, the harder it's going to be for us to retain people. So thinking about some of these other countries that do productivity well, is it, as easy as just trying to copy what they're doing or does that not work? I don't think it does. So again, corporate strategy analogy. This is, I didn't think we'd go this deep into this. Sorry, mate. Corporate, no, <laughs> no, but it's, it's the right way to think, right? Yeah. You've sat around the table with lots of CEOs and they've gone, fuck, I just want to be that company there. Mm. And, they're gonna, and you're going to go, but why? What, what, what makes you believe you can succeed where they succeeded? And so, I mean, the countries that a lot of our politicians talk about emulating, so we talk about Singapore, Israel, Ireland, these are small countries that have done really well. But let's be honest, Israel, an amazing high-tech sector, but that's because they've got one of the most advanced defense industries in the world um, because of what they're doing militarily and, and that. So it's all been driven out of their defense industry. We can't copy that because there's no way we're going to have that here. Ireland. Uh, probably the greatest growth story of the last kind of 40, 50 years, definitely in the Northern Hemisphere, and I'd argue kind of why outside of China, anywhere else as well. That's a country which they realised on the doorstep of um, doorstep of Europe, they used very low tax rates, so 12.5% corporate tax rates, to bring international corporates in, because once they're in Europe, they've got access to the whole market. Um, and now they've got um, massive, massive, massive teams. They're the European hubs for all of the large tech companies. But that's because they gave people a cheap way of gaining access into Europe. Um, and then Singapore, again, they're a trade hub. They're sitting in the middle of the highest growth region in the world with the most stable, secure um, government around. Um, we just need to figure out what is it that we have here that we can then leverage as our innate opportunities um, and go, what's our competitive advantage? Let's let's go for it rather than just saying, let's become a high-tech country because that fucking means nothing. Yeah. The, on the, say, the island with the lower tax, right? So does that mean that companies go there because they know then they're going to pay less tax so that's a competitive advantage to them, they're going to be able to then retain more cash to, to reinvest, et cetera? Do they then employ... Irish people, for instance? They do. So what 
I mean, Ireland's really... So what happened is about, I think about 10 years ago, the rules kind of changed a little bit, which actually even made Ireland's position even better because the EU changed the rules to say if you want to take advantage of the low tax in a country, then you also need to have most of your activities happening there. So now what's happened is that the big development hubs and the biggest development hub in Europe is Dublin because they've actually moved big, big, big towers of developers to for Meta, Google, Microsoft, Apple. They are all based there to take, cause, but they have to have the people to take advantage of those low tax rates. And that's why now they've got, I mean, it's really fascinating, right? Ten years ago, Ireland was one of the problem children of Europe, right? They, they, they got the bailouts. They were went bust in 2011. Yeah. Today, they've got debt to GDP at the same level as New Zealand. They've got some of the fastest productivity growth in the world. And at the same time, um, they're running like a 6% budget surplus. Uh, um, all because they've managed to find this really awesome niche that they've created for these tech companies. So I guess it's a bit like Singapore where there's all these expats that then go and live there and contribute and work and write and you can pull them in to, to do things because there's a lot happening. I watched, after I went to Singapore, I watched a documentary on the building of Marina Bay Sands and how they did it in three years and the first year was planning and it was just, it's mind-blowing. But the difference in the people who they interviewed, they were from all over the world I kind of thought, ah, you know, it's hard for New Zealand to attract people down here to do things when you're competing with a Singapore, et cetera, and you've got sexy projects like that um, to be done. But it kind of made me understand that's how you then can pull in the best talent from around the world. Yeah, but again, we come back to our corporate analogy, right? How do we get, there's no reason New Zealand shouldn't be able to attract the best talent in the world, right? We've got an amazing lifestyle down here we've got an amazing place to live New Zealand is the greatest small country in the world there's no doubt on it it's an awesome place to be um, it's safe you've got good schools you've got everything you need to have the issue is we're just not brave enough to pay people what they're worth um, you think about we've got some amazingly massive infrastructure projects um, if we were brave enough to sit, sit there and go you know what CRL who's the guy that did HS2 in London um, and which was kind of previously the which is the biggest tunneling and most complex project that's gone there that's ever gone on in the world. Let's just go pay him whatever it needs to be to get this project done. If that costs us $10 million a year, but means that that project is done a year faster and has 5 or 10% less budget overruns, that's probably a net win of like a billion dollars. Yeah. But we don't think like that in New Zealand because no. we don't think about it and go, actually, what's the potential upside? We go, oh, well, let's just do what we can within this kind of pretty tight budget, which is probably unrealistic to start with. Yeah, and then complain about how the budget blew out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then that's all we then read about is budget blowouts on different projects. Yeah, um, but right I guarantee that when you look at the Marina, I don't know the Marina Sands project, but when you look at all that stuff, what Singapore has been exceptional at doing is they will always go and get the best contractors in the world and the best people in the world to come and do their projects which is why it works. And I, I would argue we probably haven't had a great track record doing that in New Zealand, which is why we've never delivered an infrastructure project properly. Yeah, on time, we're on budget. <laughs> I guess then what, like why? Because it feels like no one, if you asked Kiwis, okay, where are we going? No one can really answer that. What's the, are we trying to be something? Do we have a strategic plan? No, and this is why I've kind of, we've, started talking about this and doing the opinion pieces around this at the moment because my view is no this is the most important issue that we have in New Zealand is how do we drive us back to being a high growth high income country um, but I haven't seen anything tangible about how we achieve that right people talk in broad terms they go oh we need to sign more trade agreements yep we've got to do that but fuck that's just BAU right that's not strategic change oh we've got to invest in our tech space yep We've got to do that. Yeah, okay. But again, tech space is massive. L latest idea was uh, from Luxon. We're going to have a minister of space. Yeah. Like, just because we found one company that's doing really well and we think, okay, that's cool. So we're going to try and build an environment around them. It's not, I'd say that's pretty high risk from a strategic governance perspective. Yeah. Um, but I think the disappointment we have in New Zealand is over the last probably 40 years, 30 years, sorry, as our politicians 
as our political world has become more centrist, it's all about just maintaining the status quo versus actually making brave long-term change, right? I mean, I'd love New Zealand to put up a kind of identify, do a big piece of work, three things that we're missing, right? One is actually, let's create an immigration strategy. Sorry, population strategy. Very contentious topics, but there are a few countries in the world that have them. So let's sit there and go, cool. In 10 years time, or 20 years time, sorry, do we want New Zealand's population to be 10 million people or do we want it to be 7 million people? Let's make a decision on that, right? But at least once we've made that decision, we can take the view of if it's going to be 7 million people, that's what the infrastructure base needs to be. Here's what it means for companies. So coming back to your construction company, they're going to know that it's 7 million people. They're going to have to find a new way of doing things because this constant supply of cheap labour isn't there. If it's 10 million people, companies are going to be able to do things slightly differently. But at the same time, who's going to pay for the housing? Who's going to pay for all of that kind of stuff? So I'd love to see some good long-term say, population thing, a strategy. I'd love to see a SWOT analysis done and some really great thinking around what are the two industries and the two big opportunities that New Zealand can go after and why do we think we're going to do it? And rather than Callaghan Innovation supporting every single person that turns up with a tech industry, a tech grant, let's say, well, fuck it, we're going to have the same amount of money, but it's only going to go to companies in those industries. Yeah. And that's going to drive something completely different. The third thing, I think, if you're going to be really brave and strategic, you've got to change our universities, right? I don't know, me, Sunedin, I absolutely loved it. It was awesome. But that wasn't about churning out kind of high-performing people, right? The US, I I believe one of the reasons why the US is so good at churning out high-end people, high-end companies and driving so much of the global growth it's fundamentally down to their universities. And it's not actually the broader universities. It's like it's probably like five or six. It's those Ivy League schools of Harvard, Princeton, MIT, um, Yale. If you think about where most of the innovation and the tech comes from in that industry, in that country, it's from those four or five universities. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's look at that, right? Let's go, cool. So how do we actually turn our universities into places where you go to get a degree to places that kind of turn out some high-end innovative kind of thinking and and people off the back of it. But that's going to require a very different way of thinking rather than everyone going to university um, or everyone doing a commerce degree. It needs to be, well, actually, only some people get a commerce degree and others go and do other things. Yeah, those would be some pretty major changes, right? And I think that would be hard for... I feel like everything's too hard from this point, so everyone just... Everything just carries on being the same. That's my point. Yeah, yeah. It's, and yeah, you those are all extreme brave. ideas. Mm. But you've got to be brave. If you're not brave, then nothing ever happens. They sound like extreme ideas, but it'd be the sort of thing you'd look back in 10 years and go, well, that was a great idea. You know, uh, I think the thing that I worry about as a nation that we don't do that sort of stuff is that then individually, people don't think about goal setting, where they're going with their life, and they get a little bit of an excuse to drift as an example let's say we had 1 p.m announcements like we did through the pandemic to be like this is the average balance of KiwiSaver if you're this age and you're here you're like what's your future going to look like how are you going to look after yourself from 65 when do you plan to retire and stuff people would take that a lot more seriously right but instead we sort of go oh let's just pretend that's not an issue over there and then we can keep people fighting about who's got too much and who doesn't have enough and um, then we can maybe look at means testing it later on or, or whatever will end up happening with it rather than going, we should probably address this problem. Oh, but, but we're just, <laughs> so, sorry, I'm kind of, I, I'm just flabbergasted because you've hit the nail so well. We're just unwilling to touch it. NZ Super is my pet hate, right? Because that papers over so many of those issues. 16% of the New Zealand tax take currently goes to NZ Super. It's expected to rise to 21% over the next kind of 15 to 20 years. There is not a single politician in New Zealand that thinks that is sustainable or can work. But there is not a single politician in New Zealand that is willing to go, actually, that's the right answer for New Zealand. And what NZ Super does is exactly what you've just said. Oh, fuck, I don't even really care about my KiwiSaver because I'm going to get the pension, I'm going to have something else. 
you know, it's just allows us to put off yet another difficult conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that would probably be my message, you know, this deep into this pod is for each of us individually to, to remember that if you set goals and you actually know what you want from your life, you're so much further ahead of most people because we're not a country of encouraging people to do that. It seems like it's something we talk about and people kind of go, oh, you know, whatever, do that on the 1st of January. But Literally, if you even just sit down and start building out goals for yourself, you're probably in the 90%, like, sorry, the 5 or 10% of the country. And when we come from a nation who don't do it, and that's, you know, going to Singapore and seeing them have a clear goal of when they wanted Marina Bay Sands built by, et cetera, and then the problems they ran into, and then they're basically like, well, we just have to keep finding solutions. And that's, you start to see, you're like, oh, that's what I now do in my life with my own goals. And then you get inspired by it and you realize, oh, I'm not building a marina Bay sands, but I'm trying to build this. And then you just apply the same methodology. And I'd, so one really important point to add to that is you will not get it right. No. You, you're going to set some goals and they'll be nice, hopefully, goals that kind of really allow you to figure out where you want to be. The steps will be all over the place. You will go three steps forward and then go six steps back. But as long as you kind of acknowledge that that is normal, that's another thing we're terrible at here in New Zealand, is acknowledging that failure is the most important learning exercise that you'll go through, um, is kind of, that's it. You set yourself some goals, walk towards it. But when you get knocked for six, you just get back up and keep going. Um, and remember, what's just knocked you for six, that's the best learning exercise because hopefully it's not going to knock you again. Yeah, and I think the how is the bit that people worry too much about or think they need to have all of those answers for, but that's usually not even there. And I, I also kind of wonder too, is that how the politicians manipulate us a little bit when they say things like, we're going to grow the economy, we're going to bring crime down, we're going to solve child poverty, and then there's never any how, but you kind of go, oh, that's good. Yeah, brilliant, I'd like to see that done. And then I, someone said to me, well, mate, if they figured out how to vaccinate everybody in the world for the sea bomb, then why can't they prioritize feeding everyone or getting people out of poverty? Like, well, when you put it like that, it kind of just breaks, yeah. you know, all of your thinking around, hmm, yeah, okay. So if it was just a money thing, then we probably could just go, we all agree, let's just print this level of money because that's what it's going to cost and we can just turn poverty off, done, fixed it in New Zealand. But it's not as simple as that, right? But the politicians have a good way of making us think that they can solve it or they'll be the one to to fix it all and it's gone forever. Yeah, and that's probably my biggest frustration with the current election cycle that we're going through. Um, we are seeing so many promises. I mean, the best one was a, was a politician that turned around and said, we're going to make fuel prices come down. Fuck, okay, so you're going to go talk to the Saudis and get them to start pumping some oil? <laughs> Little New yeah. Zealand's now all of a sudden got some sway in Saudi Arabia? Yeah. Fuck, I'll vote for that any day of the week. Mm. <laughs> um, but the problem is you go over there and New Zealand's not even on the map. They don't even know where we are. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. It's, and it's like we're, we're being sold all of this stuff um, and part of it's unrealistic what we're being sold, but it's, yeah, I, I haven't seen any New Zealand politicians focus on, the, focus on the how for a very long time. It's a bit of... Uh, we are being managed by um, by poll versus managed through a strategic set of thinking. Do you think there are things to take it back to an individual level so that productivity is not just something we think, oh, the, um, the government have to fix that or the productivity commission or my employer or whatever. Do you think there are simple examples that individuals can do to understand this better or improve their own individual productivity? Yes, I do. Um, it's a great question. I think at the end of the day, if you focus on, you put your life layer down on a piece of paper, whether it be, for me, it's work, it's my family, um, it's a few extracurricular activities. For me, there's never enough time to do it all. But how do I make myself more efficient at work? Um, and I, that, if I can make myself more efficient at work, that means I'm a far better employer, employee, sorry, employer too but employee that means that I'm more likely to get a pay rise that means my boss is going to like me more because I'm doing better for him and so what does that mean right that means um, when I come down to it going my team at the moment sitting there going a small tweak to our sales force instance is going to save them kind of about five minutes for every client that they deal with 
that is a perfect example of productivity that, that one of my team kind of implemented on Monday or suggested that we do on Monday. I think that he's great. That means the next time there's a promotion around coming, that's going to go down to him. So he's improved his own wealth, his own productivity. As a company, we've improved it. And if we keep on doing that stuff, what we are then able to do is lower our costs for our customers, which then means they're able to spend money on other things and allow other people to do the same. So mm-hmm. as long as you do starting, I think it starts at work, you doing the best you can be in becoming as efficient and making sure you're vocal about efficiencies, that's going to give you more time at home where, you can, again, you can focus on little things. Even little things that, and this is hard for me because I'm terrible at valuing my own time, I kind of go, if I turn around and sit there and say, so my food bag, I think my food bag's pretty expensive for what it is. But actually, if I sat there and valued my time at 60 bucks an hour or whatever I might charge myself out at, which is the time it takes me to go to the supermarket and I spend two hours a week going to the supermarket, thinking about it, dealing with it, all that kind of stuff, holy shit, that's all of a sudden the cheapest thing in the world. Mm. Um, so yeah, so I'd say do that at work and then in your personal life, think pretty hard about actually start valuing your time yeah i'm glad you used that example because i often that's one thing that i noticed i've never understood why people now why we've been taught to go to the supermarket this is and this happened because i worked in a distribution center so i watched the goods come in off of a truck be taken from a forklift be put into an inwards area be then moved to a picking bay to then tell me the picker go and pick 10 of those to then put them on a pallet, add the total order together, take that to dispatch, that gets wrapped, forklift takes that to truck, truck waits for total pallets, truck takes that to countdown, countdown take forklift, unload it, countdown put it out the back, those then go put get put on the shelf, individual walks in with their list and wastes 10 minutes driving there, 20 minutes, whatever, goes around, takes all the individual items off the shelf, puts them into a trolley, takes trolley to um, bottleneck, puts it on a conveyor belt, person says beep, beep, scans everything and then puts it back in your trolley, says pay, you then bag it, you take it to your car, you take car home, you put it into your pantry and then you slowly start using. When I started thinking about that, I thought, holy fuck, this is so inefficient and you can see why food's so expensive by the time you go but also how ingrained that is in kiwis to go no that's all right that's just what we do but when i looked at that and went i don't want to go to the supermarket i want to try and i want to be able to count on the number of uh, my hands how many times i go to the supermarket in a year you know i want to click and collect i want to order the same shit every week as most people do and then just go and get it and i can take back some of that time and those micro things like that are actually so powerful, but there will always be the, oh, but I love going to the supermarket or whatever. Okay, then maybe productivity is not, not your thing. But, but, that's, but as long as you're recognizing why you're doing it. Mm. You're, do, you're not doing that to feed your family. You're doing that because you love going to the supermarket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe uh, that's what you And need. then there are other areas where you might go, actually, I, I really don't like doing that. And so therefore, I'm going to find my efficiency over here. It's fascinating the way you, you're describing it there. Theoretically, they should be giving us like a 20% discount then for online shopping. Yeah. <laughs> but, but seriously, we're cutting out so much of the supplier chain and so much admin. Mm. Um, so why, why shouldn't they? Yeah, I think valuing your time is... This is again like another chapter I probably went through in my life where I learned, I don't know if it's capitalism or if it is just the way the world works, but if you swap your time for a dollar unit, okay, cool, that's what we get taught to do, getting a job, and I was straight into the workforce really young and and loved those jobs and then realizing, ah, actually swapping time for value is where you can make more than a per unit hour. Um... You know, that is that blew my mind and then having to figure out, huh, okay, how do you do that? Or then even being confident enough. And this week I've had somebody, for instance, who needs some help and I know I'll be able to help them and I've underpriced it and even they're still looking at that going, seriously, two and a half hours with you for that? And I'm like, yes, because you're buying the outcomes, the solutions, the experience. But for them, 
they're probably not going to go ahead with it, I can tell, because it's just too much of a mind bend for them of how much they're going to have to let go of. But I'm sort of sitting there in the background thinking, this is so unproductive, your thinking. Because you, you've already wasted an hour of your time thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. And you're no further ahead and you're going to push it out weeks and weeks by not making a decision. And that brings me to the second piece where I learned I need to improve my thinking. So one, looking for ways to be more productive, but then secondly, can I make decisions faster? Because I was a shocker for open an email, uh, not sure, move it back to unread, I'll deal with that later. And then when I realized that's really unproductive and inefficient, do the thinking, get it done, make decisions faster. Shit, I've been able to do so much more in my life. Unbelievable. I agree. So it's the, the meta mentality, right? So move fast, break things, but be very good at kind of coming back when you need to. And you'll get you always get a hell of a lot more done under that world. The, the valuing your time, I think, that is the hardest thing. And I, I'm first to accept I've never, ever, ever managed to get there. Um, it might be because, uh, because of a little bit of my business where fundamentally if I work 80 hours a week or if I work 40 hours a week, it doesn't actually change how much I get at the end of the day. Mm. So it kind of, it, it does turn into more, but it's, it's a really interesting one, right? And I think as employers, we also forget about that too much. Yeah. When we've got our employees, we go, oh, well, he just works for me. No, it doesn't matter. I'll just chuck that project on it because it's free. Yeah. It's not. Mm. Um, and it's a really, really hard piece. And I think if anyway, if you can do that and you can figure out a way to kind of get yourself into that mentality, that's going to be the most fastest way to get yourself into a better headspace. Yeah. Continuously thinking about adding value. Yeah. Adding value and going, what is my base unit of hourly rate, right? The other thing I like to do is go on a plane, especially internationally, and just think, you know, wow, okay, these people are prepared to pay whatever it is to sit up here. Why? You know, what are they thinking about? How do they justify that? And probably an earlier version of Luke would have been taught or think or read in the media or whatever, up themselves, rich, who do they think they are, whatever. Now I sort of look at it and go, hmm, I wonder why, you know, how come? You know, what is it? And then I heard something about the reason it's called business class is that you sleep or you do whatever, like you're doing business or you're hit the ground and you're straight into business. And so then you're willing to invest the time to protecting that downtime traveling so that you can be fresh when you land, et cetera. And I thought, oh, okay. So again, it's a different layer of thinking and more high value thinking per the hour and being willing to swap money to protect that. Oh, planes, oh, 100%. So I used to travel when I was in London. I used to kind of, once a month, I was either in London, I was either in uh, the US or in Asia. And yeah, the where you can jump on a plane, do three hours worth of work, you sleep, you get a day of meetings, jump back on a plane. It's you, like that is worth so much to the company. Yeah. Um, that is worth more than any business class flight you will ever pay for. The one thing that I do see every now and then as a bit of a rebuttal to this is, yeah, but aren't we just trying to make ourselves so productive and efficient to a point where, you know, we're just cramming even more into our lives and it's actually not good for us. But I think it comes back to your priorities and this comes back to your point on goals. So me, right, my number one priority in my life is my kids. I don't always get that right. But if I know, if I can make myself way more efficient at work and in the office, does that mean I'm going to spend more time there and get more done? No, it means I get more done. But actually for me, what that means is that I stop working Sunday nights. I stop kind of getting home at six o'clock in a grumpy, shitty mood on a Friday night because I've been working till 10, 11 o'clock every night. Yeah. So to me, it's about going, what are your goals in life? And I think when we talk about goals, goals are not just monetary. And even monetary probably needs to sit down the bottom, right? Like, what, what do you actually want out of your life? For me, I want a healthy, happy family. I want kids that know me. I want kids that like me. Um, so I'll probably just buy their love. Um, <laughs> but, you, but to me, that means why I'm making, trying to make myself more efficient is so that I can spend more time with them. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what we've all got to kind of get our heads around. There are people though, and I've worked with quite a few people like this, that go, all they really want is career and work and money. And I personally, I don't understand that um, because that's just not me. But there are lots of those people there and you go, that is awesome because 
as a country and as an economy, we need people like you. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's everyone's got to figure out what drives them. Yeah. Yeah, even looking at the politicians at the moment bouncing around the country trying to fit in their pre-election campaigning and stuff, I think that's taken somebody to map out those days, figure out who to, you know, organising it all so that they can, so that the the politicians themselves isn't inefficiently trying to do all of that themselves, right? Exactly. Yeah. The the politician's time is best spent turning up and shaking hands. Lying to people, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just being... Pretending that they're telling the story they think someone wants to hear. Yeah, good point. Yeah, they're they're just telling people what they want to hear. Uh, Their time is not spent um, kind of organising flights and doing all of that kind of stuff, right? That's just the complete waste of their space. Because if you think about it, a way a politician should be thinking is: there's a certain every shake, every hand that I shake, and every media appearance that I do is going to give me X number of votes. X number of votes is worth X dollars. And so, therefore, it's a pretty simple piece of maths once you kind of bring it right back to that level, which is fundamentally how everything can be valued. One of the things that I reckon would be very scary for most people to do, you can go online and you can get these basically matrices of your entire week. So it breaks your week down into hours. Yeah, and you keep it for a week or even two weeks and you write down in each individual hour what you're actually doing. So are you on social media? Are you at work? Are you driving? Are you at the gym? Whatever it is that you're doing, are you shopping? And then you actually turn your money to what you are your mind to where you're using your time. And that's a good way to realize, huh, you know, if I do have these goals over here, my time is not actually aligned towards making those things happen and you can build a habit around removing some of those distractions in your life or reminding yourself when you're in your distractions what could I actually be doing instead and sometimes I do this when I get into the second or the third or the fourth YouTube video and go why not chase up a couple of leads or why not produce some content Luke you say you're a producer not a consumer you know and you start to think a bit differently or protect your time a bit more or notice when you're being highly inefficient with it. And I think that's where most Kiwis probably don't go to that level of thinking. However, we've all adopted forms of technology, phones, etc. We're quick to download all the apps that suck our attention and that we think, oh, this is a real good use of our time, but then not go, am I actually using this for good or is it using me for their good? Yeah, oh, it's a it's an amazing point, right? Yeah. I've I had to delete all social media off my phone. Um, not that I spent a huge amount of time, um, but I just knew that that was my distraction. Yeah. And so I'd be sitting down trying to do something, and every now and then I go, "Oh fuck! I just have a quick look." The one I haven't been brave enough to do is delete all the news. Oh uh, yeah. I know if I do that, my productivity and efficiency levels will skyrocket. Mm. But I keep on justifying that to myself, saying I need to do it for work. Yeah, yeah. Yep. There's always the business an news. Yeah, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. And I yeah, jump in and want to see what the latest business stories are and you know what, what's going on and whatnot because it's interesting to me, but also I can end up half an hour into the comments and go, shit, what, was I, what could I be doing? Yeah, the one, the one technique I have found that works really well for me is lists. Yeah. And sitting there going, so I kind of sit down now on a Sunday night and go, what are my current priorities? And then I will write kind of, so I might have 15 different things that need to be done over a course of a week. I'll give them a day. Each one I kind of saying, I want to do it on Tuesday morning or Monday morning or whatever. And to be fair, that slips pretty quickly. Um, By kind of 10 o'clock Monday, that's normally turned to shit. But what I can do, what it does do is I'll go, okay, I've got two hours spare. Let's look at my list and let's go, cool. Here are the three things on my priorities. Um, and so I can go just bang, done, done, done. Um, because if I don't have my list, I'll spend 10 or 15 minutes thinking about what I'm going to do next, which I'll just have a quick look at the Bloomberg. Yeah. I'll have a quick look at that on the way past. And then before I know it, it's half an hour gone. Yeah. New email, uh, staff question, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I early on in business, someone said, you know, live by the calendar, die by the calendar. And I kind of thought, oh, yeah, but I wasn't busy enough at that stage or didn't have enough going on to understand that. And now, you know, I do. I look ahead at the week and figure out what's on on what day. And I'm careful of when to schedule meetings. I know ahead of a day, you know, what have I got? I'm checking it every day to, day to make sure, okay, am I prepared for that? 
you know, do I, was there something I was supposed to send? And I think it's a personal journey trying to understand your own productivity, efficiency, um, those sorts of things. But especially once you get out of working for a per dollar amount per hour, then the world looks completely different again. And then you realize, okay, the more efficient you can be um, or more productive or more value you can bring, that that's probably how people justify being in business class or, or whatever, because they're just looking at things completely different to how we've probably been taught. Oh, 100%. Mm. Have we covered productivity? I feel like oh, we could probably we, go We've gone hours. a long way. Yeah. Uh, we've got a lot further than, on than I thought we would. So, yeah. yeah, I think we've done a lot. But I, I like how we can take it from a, a countrywide problem to a corporate problem to an individual problem. Um, and actually, for, for this one here, solving the individual productivity issue, I think is going to be awesome um, because that's what gives us all time. Yeah. Time is the most valuable thing you'll ever have. That's right. Nice. All right, mate. Nice place to leave it. If people want to read more about some of your opinions in this space, are you publishing those? Yeah, so those are on the Cotter website, uh, Um And we have an opinion piece and stuff at the moment on this as well. So yeah, so for me, uh, this is my current fight, productivity. Awesome, mate. I like it. It's one of those things where we know it's a problem in the country. We don't really know how to solve it. There's no direction in it. So then we just tell people every now and then in media articles, it's an issue. But if people can better understand it, I think why I wanted to go deep onto some of the individual stuff is if they can start doing that, then they make sense of it more because it's probably not going to get solved at a, at a high level until there's some real brave thinkers like you mentioned. But individually, we can find ways to put time back in our, in our day and our week. But I think, and it's a lot of what you've been saying about individual responsibility, right? We all believe that the government's there, but at the end of the day, it's an individual, it's a family unit, it's a corporate unit, it all aggregates up to a government unit. And so if we start at the very bottom, that's how we drive change because we expect it out of ourselves. And if we can deliver it on ourselves, then we'll expect it out of our governments too. Outstanding, mate. Love it. We have to do a part two, three, four, sixty thousand on uh, productivity. <laughs> we will over time. Well, AI will do it for us, right? We won't even bother talking. Good point. Right, yeah. let's get out of here and let AI take over. Exactly.